Good morning. I hate to break up your fellowship, but it is time to get started this morning. So glad that you're here today, and so glad that our hope is heavenward. Amen? Amen. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Amen? Not a great promise, especially in our days today. Would you stand with me as we begin our time of worship together, celebrating together the days of night? Let's sing together. These are the days of Elijah. And these are the days of your servant. Moses' righteousness we restore. And though these are days of great trials, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. It's hard to know a God we don't understand, and it's hard to love a God we don't know. But our God wants to be known and loved, and he's told us a lot about himself in the pages of his word. 
I'm Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm inviting you to join me for a seven-session Bible study called He's Where the Joy Is, Getting to Know the Captivating God of the Trinity. Together, we'll look at the Trinity as a whole, then we'll get to know each of the persons of God individually, Father, Son, and Spirit. As we get to know Him better, understanding His three-in-oneness will transform how you relate to Him. Not only that, but it will begin to inform everything about the way you make peace with your past, live in the present, look to the future, interact with others. What you learn about God will shape you for the rest of your life. Not only are you going to be in awe of who He is, but you're going to love who He is because He's where the joy is. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. That ladies' Bible study begins on August the 10th. That's a Thursday. There'll be two options at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Uh, if you'll please go by the info desk in this building, back in the lobby, they will take care of you getting signed up. You can pay for your session or pay for the uh, Bible study, your first session. The cost is $20. But thank you uh, again for being here today. Let me welcome you. If you're a guest of ours, we ask you to please take one of the care cards. They're located in the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, we'd like to have a record of you being here and send you something from Pitts to let you know uh, how glad we are uh, that you're here with us. And also on the back of the care card is a place to put any prayer requests that you might have, and that's for everyone. Take a moment to do that. As you leave this morning, there are two giving boxes on either side of the double door. As you leave the worship center, you can place those there uh, as you leave. But thank you again uh, for being with us this morning. Thank you for praying for us last week. Our youth and children were off to summer camp last week, and I don't think there were any serious injuries. We did not have to make any uh, emergency room visits, uh, so that was a good thing. Uh, so thank you for praying for us, and I know you'll be hearing stories about those uh, different trips uh, over the next few days, I'm sure. Also, our mission team in Paris are flying home as we speak. Uh, they'll be picking them up around 5 o'clock tonight, so thank you for praying for them. Hopefully you stayed um, uh uh, in information through Facebook and social media, seeing the posts for them all last week while they were in Paris. Like they had a great time. Uh, we are collecting school supplies for the upcoming year for Fur and Pitt School Road Elementary. We normally fill backpacks, but they both uh, both the schools express that they have enough backpacks. They really just need the supplies for the school, and so supply lists are available in the lobbies of the core and the worship center. And uh, you can go by and get those and begin bringing those even today through August the 6th. If you can help us out with that, that would be great. You already heard the announcement about the ladies' Bible study. We'll be taking up a special love offering next Sunday, July the 30th, for Matt and Darian Tucker, who will be leaving us to go into full-time ministry in Weaverville, North Carolina. If you would like to write a check for that, you can make that out to Pitts Baptist Church. And again, that's next Sunday right after the morning service. We'll be taking up that special love offering. Also, denomination forms are due today. Uh, they have those at both of the lobbies. You can drop those in the giving boxes also as you leave. And please be in prayer for Pastor and Miss Connie as they're away. I think they'll be traveling back uh, even today on vacation. And so be praying for them. We uh, have a very special guest who flew all the way in from Mount Pleasant this morning. Uh, he's one of our very own. <laughs> Uh, Josh Suggs will be bringing the message this morning, so we're excited to hear what God has given to Josh this morning in his message. I think Hebrews 11, Hebrews 9, okay? 
Anyway, we're looking forward to that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. And if you would take a moment just to silence your heart uh, in prayer this morning, and then I'll pray out loud in just a moment. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for all of our blessings uh, to begin to even think and name those would be impossible, God. Thank you for taking care of us and watching over us. God, thank you for a church that is concerned about children and youth to allow us to go to camp and missions as we have a team coming back even today uh, from Paris. God, thank you for allowing us to do those things. And God, we do pray for Pastor and Miss Connie as they uh, come back this way, God. We pray that they're refreshed and have had a great time, too, on vacation. Just uh, we thank you for Pastor Scott and what he means to our church. God, we pray for Josh this morning as he uh, brings the message that you've given to him. God, I pray you'd speak through his mouth. God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts today. Just use him in a powerful way today. And God, for the request that you've heard uh, just a moment ago, we pray that you give us wisdom in each of those situations, God. I know there are people in this room who are probably hurting, who are dealing with issues, God, and we ask that you give them wisdom uh, to know what to do and not do, God. Be with those requests. God, we pray for our country. We pray for our leadership. God, that they would turn and seek your face, God, and your will. Just give us a good day today. Help our worship service be pleasing to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.
Amen. Would you stand with me? You know, a, a week ago or two weeks ago, Laura and I had the privilege of visiting a place where many folks call paradise. It was Hawaii. It was beautiful, but it was also a reminder of that this is not our home. There is a heavenly home that we have to look forward to that's perfect in every way. So let's sing some old songs about heaven together. Would you join me? Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the
celestial shore I fly Good morning, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, good. You guys can flip to Hebrews chapter 9 in your copy of God's Word. This one will be reading out of there. And uh, also, if you can for me, uh, have Leviticus 16 ready up and ready to go. We'll be reading out of there too this morning. Um, and like Kevin said earlier, my name is Josh Suggs, and I am uh, so grateful to be here this morning. Uh, Kevin texted me a while back, and he asked if I wanted to come and preach, and I told him, there's no way I'm going to pass up on this opportunity. Um, and in preparation for this morning, I read countless pages, I read uh, countless books and commentaries, I listened to sermons preached, and through all of that, this passage of scripture, I think what points out to me the most, what stands out, is that it's the simple truths of this passage that stay the same. And my hope and my prayer has been for this morning that for the believer who is in this room, that we'll all be reminded of what we were saved from, both the wrath of God and our sin, and how this was done through Jesus on the cross. But also that we're reminded of who we once were without Christ and the grace and the mercy which he has so lovingly given to us to cleanse our hearts and to cleanse our minds. And that we remember that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And my prayer for the unbelievers has been that they'll see how defiled they are, that they'll see their impurity that's in their life, and that through the Spirit they'll be saved. I mean, my urge and my plea is that if you do not know Jesus, that today you would know who he is. And it's the most important thing and the most important decision that you could ever make. And so with that, would you stand for the reading of God's word, starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1, going through verse 14. And this is the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense 
And the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff to budded. And the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, or the Holy Spirit teaches, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you. And uh, thank you for this day, God. I thank you that you would allow us to gather here this morning, God. And I pray uh, for those who are in this room, Lord, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice that does not know your son, Lord, that you would um, grasp their heart, Lord, that you reveal to them the truth of what Jesus has done, Lord. And for the believer that's in this room, God, I pray that you would encourage them and equip them this morning, Lord, that they would love you more, God. And I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that I would speak and preach Christ crucified only. I love you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I think for every single person here and around the world, we can all feel deep inside of us that our conscience isn't pure. That there's something wrong with the way that we think. There's something wrong with the way that we act. And for the believers here, we know that the root of that is sin. And we can all sit back and feel just how guilty we are inside of us, believers and unbelievers alike. And that all flashes back to what happened in the garden when we ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to dive into a lot of scripture today, and I mean lots of it. Uh, and so I really hope that we can all grasp the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And we take that and we walk out of here this morning with a deeper love and a really, really thankful heart before God. And I want to preface before we also dive into this text that this passage, just like so many others in the book of Hebrews, could have eight or nine sermons preached on it just because of the rich content that's within every single word here. So for me to be faithful uh, to this passage, at certain points we're going to move quickly and at other points we're really, really going to slow down. Um, so let's get started in verse 1. Verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. I'm going to stop right here for a second. There's two things that I want us to see with this first verse. And we can't miss the context, and we can't miss the point of the section that the writer of Hebrews has given us. Because if we go back into chapter 8, we see that this chapter, chapter 9, is a comparison of the new covenant. And the last verse of chapter 8 says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Those words, 
new covenant. It antiquated the previous covenant. And I don't want us to miss it here either, that our author doesn't go beyond what Jeremiah said in the Old Testament when speaking on the new covenant to come, when Jeremiah implies that when the new covenant is here, it's going to supersede the old. We can flash to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says he's a minister of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the spirit. So our author is implying that if the old covenant is obsolete, so is the Aaronic priesthood, the earthly sanctuary, the Levitical sacrifices. He's simply saying this, that the age of the law and the prophets is past, yet the age of the Son is here, and it is here to stay. And that leads us into chapter 9. And we could spend hours talking about all the furnishings that are spoken of in this chapter, but that's not what the author wants us to do, and that's not what the author wants us to see here. Our author's point is different. He's telling us, as we'll get into a little bit later, that the sanctuary of the old covenant, the furnishings inside, the sacrificial arraignments that had to be done, they were all temporary. And that Jesus has come once and for all and eternally set these things into place in the heavenly reality. So we see in verses 1 through 8, they speak on the temporary nature of what the Lord has graciously allowed for man to set up under the old covenant. And God allowed this so that people could approach him, right? Like, I don't want us to miss it. Like I said earlier, every person can feel the impurity and the defilement of our souls because of sin. Because I think everybody knows that there's something wrong. Even as a child, we know that what we're doing when we sin is wrong. And when that happens, we also can feel that we are separated from our God, who we were made to be in fellowship with, because of sin, because it's defiled us. And as humans, we can look into society and we can see so many different ways that people try to cope with their guilt through philosophy, psychology, other false religions that this world has come up with, all the humanistic ways that they've tried to deal with their guilty and defiled conscience. But every single way that they try to, to confront their guilty and defiled conscience, it falls flat on their face. And even in society today, we can see now they just want to embrace their defilement. They're saying what is wrong is good. Society is calling evil good. They want to celebrate these things. Yet even in all of it, it still leaves them drowning in their shame and guilt. And this hasn't just happened now in history. This has happened all the way back to when we ate of the tree. And the Bible addresses these things. But the Lord knew our separation. The Lord knew our defilement. He knew the path that humanity would go down. So under the old covenant, he gave the tabernacle. He gave the temple. He gave the Levitical priesthood. He gave the outer place so that people can offer a sacrifice for their sins. He gave the Holy of Holies. But let's keep reading. Verse 2 down to verse 6. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which where the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. 
The author wants us to see these things, what was being done in the temple, the daily sacrifices that were happening in the outer courtyard. And this happened day in and day out where people could bring a lamb, they could bring a goat, they could bring a bull and make an offering for their sin. And the priests um, would have an opportunity by lot, likely once in their lifetime, to enter into the holy place just through that first set of curtains where they would set out the bread and light the candle and they would burn incense in there where it's, it's a picture of prayer going up before the Lord. And I remember this is what Zechariah was doing uh, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that his wife was pregnant with John the Baptist. They would go in there constantly. But it was just on the one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go in into the most holy place. So we keep reading in verse 7. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that, when, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the bodies, imposed until the time of reformation. This whole system that's being talked about here in chapter 9, it was made by God so that humans, that people could draw near to him. So even though everybody has sinned, out of all the nations, Israel could come just a little bit closer. And inside of Israel, one tribe could just come in just a little bit closer, the tribe of Levi. And in that tribe, one family could come in just a little bit closer, the family of Aaron, and out of that family, one man, the high priest, who would one day a year serve in the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And as much as this speaks to God's grace for allowing them to draw near, it also speaks to our separation between God and man. And what the author is pointing out to us through this, it never accomplished the point of cleansing your conscience so that you would ever feel confident to come before your God, that you would never have full access to the God who made you, to the God who loves you, to the God who made you in his image and likeness, so that you would know him and love him and serve him. There's still separation in the old covenant. And it wasn't ethnicity, it wasn't tribe or family or curtains which separated God, it was our conscience. In two ways, in two ways, our conscience keeps us separated from God, apart from Christ. It's the defilement. It's telling us that something is wrong, and man, there is something wrong. Sin is corrupted, and it demands justice. It demands wrath. And it's warning us that this is our situation before a living and holy God. The other way it's separating us is through feeling. That understanding and knowing that none of us are worthy to stand before the holy God. And this system, which is beautiful and helpful, never accomplished putting us into full relationship with God, with total and unlimited access into the presence of God. So with that, we're going to go to Leviticus 16. And in Leviticus 16, we meet Aaron. He's the brother of Moses, the first high priest of Israel, and uh, before this passage, the tabernacle had already been set up, and Aaron had two sons, and 
They had been serving in the tabernacle. And if you remember, they do something. We're not told directly in Scripture what they did wrong, uh, but they offered some sort of strange fire in the presence of God, and they were consumed. And God gives more direct instructions to Moses to give to Aaron. And don't miss it either. These directions are going to the father of the two sons who were just consumed before God. Like, this is about to be a lot. We're about to read a, read a lot of scripture right here, but I'm, I beg you, please stick with me. Because when you see what's going on in this part of scripture and how it relates to Jesus a little bit later on, man, it's going to blow your mind and you're going to have an understanding more so why the new covenant is so good and it is so complete. So Leviticus 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist. And wear the linen turban, these are the holy garments. He shall bathe his, wa- his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the, uh, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as an offering, sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression and their sin. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. And he has made atonement for himself and for his house and for the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And here it is. And when he has made an end for atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. 
And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is the picture that God has painted. And he's telling us today, the Holy Spirit has to teach us a lesson from these things. And the main point of the lesson is, it could never remove the guilt. It could never remove the shame and the defilement of your conscience that is keeping you out of fellowship with your creator. But we have this vivid picture for Aaron. And I can't imagine what Aaron's thinking and what he's feeling in this moment. God has just consumed his two sons in the tabernacle. And then he has to go in there. And he has to make an offering for himself, for the sins of him, for the sins of his family, and for the sins of his nation. And I can't imagine it. I don't think I could put myself in the shoes of Aaron. Because I don't know how he didn't have bitterness or resentments towards the God who he's supposed to serve. Yet Aaron, he enters in with the blood of a bull to make offering and sacrifice for sin because he is just as guilty as well because his conscience isn't clean and he knows he deserves the wrath that God has the power to unleash but he's got to enter in for himself because of his sin and for the sin of his family and the sin of his nation can you picture it can you picture it Aaron he's grabbing the horns of the bull and he's symbolically transferring the sins of himself the sins of the family, and the sins of the nation on this animal so that by their blood this temporary picture of atonement can be made. Because I think they knew all along that this actually didn't take away their guilt, that this actually didn't take away their sin. I think they knew all along. And remember what the writer of Hebrews said? He would offer for the unintentional sins of the people. And that needs to make us hit the brakes. I mean, that needs to make it slow down. Because there's a sacrifice for unintentional sin, but what about intentional sin? And I know about me. And you guys know about yourselves, but man, most of our sins that we commit, they are intentional sins. And there's no provision for intentional sins in the Old Covenant. And we have to be careful because People are all over the map on this, and some of the ambiguity of the language between intentional and unintentional is on purpose, because uh, in English, uh, unintentional is like saying, uh, I didn't really mean to do that, or, or it caught me off guard, I didn't know about it, it, it wasn't intentional, I didn't see the speed limit change, um, I didn't know I was causing somebody else any harm, it's not like that kind of thing, intentional sin. It's more like the way the Old Testament highlights it, and it's high-handed sin, or as Hebrews chapter 10 says, willfully sinning. And Hebrews 10 says that if we go on sinning willfully, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And the point of what high-handed or intentional sin, which had no provision for, is this. This is what people say when they intentionally sin. I know it's sinful. I know it's an attack against God and against his nature, and against his character, and I know God said not to do it, but I do it anyway, and not because it's 
what I want to do, but because I'd rather do what I want to do than to serve God. Man, and that's terrifying. And do people actually go there? Absolutely, man. Because King David went there. Do you remember when he's praying his prayer? And he seems to say two things that contradict. He says, you don't desire sacrifice or I would give it. Psalm 51. What he's saying is you don't desire the sacrifice. You don't desire the blood from a bull or a goat. He's saying that he knows it can't help him. But in the same prayer he says this. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. And then he says this. Purge me with hyssop. And what's that? It's a hyssop branch. That was used to dip the blood of the lamb at Passover to put blood on the doorway. And later on in Exodus, they would take a hyssop branch and sprinkle almost everything in blood as a picture of it being atoned for. And he's saying he knows the blood of animals can't be a sacrifice for my high-handed rebellion against you, God. But in that same prayer, he's saying, purge me with the blood of the lamb. I think they knew that all of this wasn't an end in and of itself to the greater, and it was all pointing to the greater lamb and the greater sacrifice. Because David knew, he knew that his only hope was that one day God would provide a sacrifice that really could purge him of his guilt, of his shame, and of his sin. And every year when the high priest would go in, and I want to state this, tradition tells us this, not the Bible, but it just makes sense that the high priest would tie a rope around his ankle with a bell on it, and he would enter in. It just makes sense, especially if we, what we just read in Leviticus 16, when God tells Aaron he's got to do it just like this. So if anything went wrong, like, if he did die in there, who's going in there to get him? Not me. <laughs> I promise you that. It makes sense that they would have a rope on them and they would be able to pull him out. Because if he's supposed to be the best of us, and he took in the blood of the bull and he took in the blood of the goat on our behalf and God didn't receive that, then I'm not going in there. There's separation. Why? Because we could feel it in our conscience. We're impure, we're defiled, we're guilty. And we can come up with religions and philosophies and psychology that say, all of it, it you know, man, it really isn't your fault. That guilt that you're feeling, it's not real. It's been projected onto you because of the system that you were raised in. No, 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 no. At the end of the day, my conscience is guilty. And if I say I'm not guilty, all I'll do by embracing more sin and shifting the blame is sear my conscience, is sear the conscience in our minds and make it more callous. And that's why it's good to take a moment to talk about these things. Because this is the whole point of the law. It speaks to the conscience. It tells us that something is wrong. It tells us that we need a greater sacrifice. And Spurgeon says this, I do not believe any man can preach the gospel who doesn't first preach the law. 
For the law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart until the law first makes way for it. Why a needle? Because our conscience is hard. And we've all seared it by ignoring its warning and continuing in sin. So Aaron would go in, he would do his work, and he'd get out. And it becomes clear as why he and every other high priest would rush in and rush out because they didn't belong in there. They would keep it dark in there. They would light incense so that there would be smoke in between them and the mercy seat and the tablets of the law which speak to our guilt before a holy God. And then there's this weird picture with the other goat, Azazel. Other translations will say it's a scapegoat. That's where we get our term and idea for scapegoat, which still fits. You know, like you could say, oh, that person, he's become the scapegoat, which just means uh, he just took the blame, or he took the blame in the fall, or we shift the blame from us onto him. And this is a picture of what is happening with the sacrifice that was being made, atonement being made, blood being shed to atone for our sin that demands death, the blood of an innocent given the spotless, blameless blood of a lamb. And the other one, it's a picture of taking that guilt and shame and it being sent away into the wilderness never to return. The images of the two, goal, two goats, it's a cool picture. So we come back to Hebrews chapter 9. And he says all of that that we just read in Leviticus 16 here in chapter 9. He says all of that was just outwardly. It was ceremonial. It could just set you apart to temporarily worship, and then you'd have to do it all over again. Man, they, they didn't have any confidence. They never had any full and unlimited access before God. But he says here in verse 10, but these things deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more for the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see it? Jesus is the fulfillment of what all of these pictures were, so that our conscience could be cleansed, so that the actual impurity could be removed, because he offers his own blood. He offers his own blood that actually has the power to remove our sin. And he goes into the presence of God, into the holy place, not made with hands. He goes into the heavenly and perfect reality, and he offers himself on our behalf. And Kent Hughes says this quote, The theological message portrayed through the rites performed on this most sacred day, the Day of Atonement, serve as a template for understanding the message of Christianity. The centerpiece of Christianity is the cross 
For Jesus' death resulted in the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his blood and for all who repent and express faith in Christ as Savior. The rituals that happened on the Day of Atonement provided an explanation through moving pictures of what happened in God's eyes when Jesus died on Mount Calvary. When Jesus is on the cross bleeding, when he's suffering, when he's dying, this is how God sees what he is doing, accomplishing our redemption. When Jesus is on the cross with the nails between his hands and his feet, and what he's doing is providing full access for us through the shedding of his own blood. Man, and this blood's not being offered to the Romans or the Jewish council. No, he's offering it. He's bringing it before his Father on our behalf. He is sprinkling it on the mercy seat so that he can provide eternal redemption, full forgiveness. He can give us actual cleansing of our conscience. And he can remove the impurity in our lives. But not just removing the impurity and defilement that's in us but by actually changing the way that we think and we feel about our relationship with God. Man, and that's huge. And it's interesting to see the relationship between Jesus and the high priest who were serving while he was physically on earth. And do you remember who the high priest was? Caiaphas. And remember, Jesus' ministry is blowing up, uh, and he's getting famous, and, and they really didn't like that at all. They got really jealous, and, and you remember at this one point, they're having a meeting, and the people in the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are arguing, and Caiaphas speaks up, and he says, don't you know it's better if one person dies instead of the whole nation? I mean, the Jews, they're scared about Rome, and they think if we let Jesus' ministry continue, and people think that Jesus is the Messiah, Rome will come in and destroy Israel. And John in his gospel, man, he says time out. Because Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying in that moment. And because Caiaphas was the high priest, he was prophesying. And what did he say? It's more expedient that one man die than the whole nation. He didn't even know what he was saying. He was identifying Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. The goat that would be killed and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat for the sins of the people to make atonement and to make propitiation. Because that image of Aaron coming out and putting his hands on the head of the animal and symbolically transferring the guilt of the people to it. Man, let's fast forward to what happened the night that Jesus was betrayed. Think and remember Aaron putting the hands on the goat. He's taken before the Sanhedrin. Jesus is. And this mock trial takes place. Picture it in your mind with me. The high priest sitting exalted above Jesus, surrounded by these priests, surrounded by these temple guards, and they're all leveling accusations against Jesus, and they're calling him a liar, and they're trying to say, man, he's trying to lead a rebellion and an insurrection. They're saying that he claimed to be God, which he is. And they're saying all these things against Jesus. And it says this about Jesus, like a lamb before the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Man, it's so muddled in the Sanhedrin because the witnesses couldn't even agree on what they were leveling against Jesus. And, but then Caiaphas stands up and he says, enough. 
He says to Jesus, do you claim to be the son of God? Are you the son of the most high, the son of the most blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And Caiaphas tears his robe and says, what further need do we have of witnesses? He's a blasphemer. He accuses Jesus of sin, and they start pounding on him. They spit on him. They slap him. They punch him, and they tear him out of there. And that's just the beginning of the night that he was about to experience. They didn't even realize that they were playing their part. Caiaphas doesn't even realize he is symbolically transferring the guilt of the nation onto Jesus. Our guilt, our shame, our sin. We're the one, we're the ones who are the blasphemers. We're the ones who claim to be God of our lives and we're not. And all of that because it's transferred on to Jesus, who like a lamb before the slaughter doesn't open his mouth. Caiaphas didn't even know he's playing the God-ordained role of the high priest that every other high priest had played before, except now it's real. And Jesus bears that sin, and he bears that guilt, and he bears that shame, and he carries his cross to Calvary. And I've often wondered this. On the day of atonement for the bull or the goat, and it's a, it's a pretty quick and clean process. Sharp knife. It's a quick death. There's a lot of blood. They bleed out, man, and it's a vivid picture. And I think it wasn't like that for Jesus. He had to suffer. Why? Like, why did he have to suffer so harshly? Why did it have to be so excruciating? Why the scourging? Why the beating of his back with the whip? Why the ripping out of his beard? Why then placing the crown of thorns on his head and shoving it into his skull? Why the being crucified naked? Why did it have to be the, the pain of the cross where for every breath, for him to breathe while he's on there, he had to lift his scarred and marred back on that wooden and rugged cross just to breathe. Why did he have to suffer? I don't have a good, clean, articulated theological answer, but Isaiah says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I don't know, but that's how it had to happen. So he laid down his life so our conscience could be cleansed. Not just so that we don't have to go to hell, but that we would actually feel differently. And I use the word feel on purpose here. Because oftentimes as believers, we believe everything that was just preached. Jesus' blood was shed for forgiveness and remission of my sins, that we belong to God. Yet as believers, sometimes you live as if the feelings of your conscience is still separating you from God. And you believe that's the most real thing, man, but it's not. Your conscience has been cleansed. 
And Jesus went into the holy place before the very presence of the Father. And unlike those high priests in Israel, he doesn't hurry out. He stays. He belongs. He sits down enthroned as the Son of God, our great King Priest. And there's not a rope tied to Jesus to bring him out in case God isn't pleased with his sacrifice. Because God is pleased with his sacrifice. Chapter 6 in Hebrews tells us he's not getting pulled out, but he is the anchor. And connected to that anchor is the chain. And to the chain is the boat of our faith. And what's he doing? He's not allowing us to drift away. He says, I don't care what your conscience is telling you. You have been cleansed. You have been purged. You have been cleaned by the blood of Jesus. And what Jesus is doing every day as our high priest who makes intercession for us, he's pulling us in every single day to himself. And he's not allowing you to drift. He's telling us, live your life here in my presence and come boldly before the throne of grace. Not because we're so awesome, not because we're so good, but because Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It would be easy to pass over that last part, but that's the whole point. Why have our consciences cleansed? So that we can serve God. We don't just go into the presence of God with Jesus and party. No, we go in there and we serve. We don't need a priest because we already have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. And what we have now is the priesthood of all believers where we're all ministers in the presence of God. So what do we get to do with that? We get to serve. We get to go in before the presence of God and pray for ourselves. We get to pray for others around us, man. We get to invite people that we know into this glorious truth of the gospel. We get to serve. So quit making all the excuses in the world. Quit trying to make a fig leaf out of philosophy and hedonism and whatever else you would try to do and get away from the guilt that you feel. Man, like, come and have your sins forgiven in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. We get to minister from this place in the very presence of God with a clean conscience, with a clean heart because of the perfect work of Jesus. In the day of atonement, Aaron would get done and the second goat would get sent off. And some will say the second goat doesn't apply here in chapter 9, but I think it's implied. Because our guilt and the legal and moral ramifications of our sin had to be dealt with. And so does our feeling of guilt and shame. And that's what that goat pictures. And it's been removed. It's gone forever. He'd been separated from our sin. Like the east is from the west. The God who knows all things chooses to forget your sin. That is a beautiful thing. Your sin's been separated, man. You've been carried away. So the question is, have your, has your conscience been cleansed? 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you. I'm thankful for what you've done, God. That this temporary picture of every single day, day in, day out, that we needed sacrifice, Lord, and once a year on the Day of Atonement, Lord, that you have fulfilled it and completed it through Jesus on the cross, God, and we are forever grateful, God. Thank, thank you for cleansing our conscience, purifying our hearts and our souls, Lord. God, and I pray that every day we wake up and we know that we are able to approach the throne of grace boldly and come and bow, Lord, and that we are able to serve in your presence, God. Pray that we would know the truth of the gospel, that we preach it to ourselves every day, Lord. I love you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.